Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It would help if I turned the encoders on. A special edition of iHeartRadio, also AMFM247.com, as well as our good friends over there. And Red Nation Rising Radio. Tune in, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, of course. KFRK in Denmark, Colorado. The World Radio Network as well. You gotta say it like Brother Ken would say it. The World Radio Network. We are gonna go to our guest, Dan Blatt, here in just a few moments. Also, IQ Rob Rizzoli, the best-selling author Dan Perkins, and our good friend, Mr. Don Mazzella. So, let's join them in progress. I bet they're having an entertaining conversation. And 29. And, I guess uh, they, I should stand corrected. They call it the Great, the great Recession, not Great Depression. <laughs> okay. We are, we are live here with uh, Dan Perkins, best-selling author. Also, Don Mazzella, best-selling author. IQR Rizzoli, our world traveler, and our good friend, Dan Blatt. And uh, Dan Blatt is the author of Understanding the Great Depression. And uh, first of all, Dan, tell us a little bit about your book, and then I'll let um, our financial expert, Dan Perkins, lead us off. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity to continue my 50-year effort combating the catastrophists who use the Great Depression as a propaganda foil for various ideological and political ends, most recently to justify the bailout of such worthy organizations as Goldman Sachs, AIG, Merrill Lynch, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and others too numerous to mention. Well, uh... Dan, you 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 work in this area. You you've had a lot of uh, a, a you know you you you've you've wrote a lot of articles and done financial dealings yep. and things in this area. Uh, start yes. start the discussion off here. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity to talk to this gentleman. Um, it's it's really quite bizarre, Jim, because I did a presentation this morning. This is honest to God's truth. When I was talking about what's going on globally and domestically as it relates to the economies, um, I started off by talking about the gross domestic domestic product to uh, debt ratio, starting with China. Impressive, isn't it? 240%. Mm-hmm. Wow. 240%, which means that uh, their debt is so high, it's two, almost two and a half times the total value of the annual GDP of the country of China. Not far behind is the country of Japan at about two, actually ahead because China's 240, Japan's 250. Yeah, and, don't oh, underestimate the fact that both of those nations have very... Uh, Robust uh, balance of payment surpluses, which does make a difference. It well, um, possibly, but I, I I will get to that in just a minute. Um, switching domestically, 
Uh, I'm using it only as an, a singular example. I could do a lot. Um, by the way, um, Goldman Goldman Sachs uh, interesting operation. We should talk about that too. But more important, Moody's downgraded the debt of China to A1 last week. Um, so it's it's rec- and it says that the recognition is this is why I come back to your balance of payments. Recognition is that their country's economy is slowing dramatically and the debt service is beginning to eat it alive as as different alternatives are found for manufacturing that is affecting the exports of China, which will affect its balance of payments. But we'll mm-hmm. get back. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Look, I want to do domestically. I'm using this as an example. The state of Connecticut reported. Another good example. <laughs> I'm, I'm just full of these good examples. See, I didn't it even is. know you were going to be on today, and I already did my homework. Um, so the state of Connecticut has a problem. they got a $1.6 billion shortfall on the budget. They've lost 27,000 residents in the last four years. That many. Yep. And the income tax for people who make over $500,000 this year went up 300 basis points to almost 7%. Now, I think it's higher in California. It could be, sure. Yes, it is. It probably is. My point is, there and their so and their pension, pension unfunded pension liability in one year, grew by five point seven billion dollars. Unfunded pension liability, five point seven billion dollars in one year. We're supposed to ignore those things. Well, I'm sorry, I I, I can't ignore. <laughs> I can't ignore. Okay. My question, my question to you, as as a scholar of the Great Depression, I just want to ask you. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'll ask you one question, and then I'll let my other buddies go after you. Um, do you happen to know what the jet to, the debt to GDP ratio was in the United States prior to the recession, or the depression? Uh, it was. Uh, it wasn't the. It wasn't the debt of the United States that was important, and it was very low, by the way. Uh, but the, the the big the importance was the debts that burdened the. Uh, European allies coming out of World War One, they were dollar-denominated debts, and the trade war, the Fordney-McCumber tariff from 1922, prevented them from earning the dollars they needed to uh, service their debts. So the, the the key debts leading into the Great Depression were the uh, the debts from abroad. So the question I want to ask you is. The question I asked this morning at the conference, and that was the number of major industrialized countries throughout the world that have a debt-to-GDP ratio greater than one is significant. Are we on the verge of another depression? You can't have something like the Great Depression in a globalized world. You can have other kinds of problems, and they can be very difficult. But uh, the problem with the Great Depression was that international markets had been destroyed by the trade war. And the markets that have been destroyed can't recover. There are all kinds of ways of uh, rescheduling finances on a broad basis when that happens, and it can lead to some very severe problems. 
but it, it, it's not going to lead to another Great Depression. So can we take a deep breath and say we're safe? Uh, well, because of the leverage, you know, we've had this uh, interest rate suppression now for, what, eight, nine years? Yeah. As you can expect with low interest rates, everybody's leveraging up like crazy, which is what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. It leads to a very fragile situation, and uh, it will be tested when uh, the Federal Reserve's interest rates move somewhere north of 3%. Yellen is not very anxious to get there, and, well, she should hesitate, but eventually she'll probably try and get there. And that's when the whole situation will be tested. Back to you, Jim. Don, do you have any uh, follow-up to this? Well, oh, yeah. Uh, do you hear me now? Yes, we've got you, my friend. Okay. You're on, you're on. Uh, I have to tell you, um, I don't know where I read it just recently, but uh, and I, I think it might have been a review of your book, how, how much uh, it, it is so important, the fact that... Uh, uh, Europe couldn't pay its debt, which led to the Great Depression. I have to tell you, um, my my father, ex father in law, um, uh, lived through the Depression, and uh, my uh, master's thesis was on the Depression. So uh, I, I know uh, just enough to be dangerous, but at one point he actually thought I had lived through it because I knew so much. But my view is. Um, uh, at, at the time, perhaps you want to uh, discuss it, that the, the impression really was uh, because there was a lack of faith in the future. And then if you really look at what uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did, all he really did was restore confidence in the future, which would uh, enable the country to survive until the war took us out of the Depression. What do you think about that? Well, I'm sorry. I, I view... Roosevelt as a really great wartime president, and uh, there were some really uh, elegant uh, advances made in the regulatory front with the securities laws and the banking laws. But as far as his industrial policies, like the NIRA, uh, they were they were close to a disaster. He didn't save the economy; he nearly destroyed it with uh, things like the NIRA. Uh, so I, I don't think very highly of the New Deal. Neither do I, but uh, the point was that really uh, all he did was just try to throw enough things against the wall that uh, something might work. And the only thing that worked really was the war and the need of, uh, uh, in 1939. The war, the, the war worked not when we got into it, but when Europe got into it. Yes. Uh, uh, when Europe got into it, that forced open our export markets, and uh, almost eight percentage points dropped off our unemployment rate back down to single digits before Pearl Harbor. So it wasn't our debts and our expenditures during the war that got us out of the Depression. It was the forcing open of our export markets because, of course, Europe needed what we produced, and their customers needed what we produced also, so we were suddenly in a very strong position. Well, also, uh, didn't uh, Britain and France uh, have to liquidate some of their American holdings to finance that? Yes, they, uh, they did, and that was the one of the costs. Before this, in all of her imperial wars, 
Britain was able to finance her own wars and those of her allies because her credit was good. But after the 1920s and 1930s, when it became evident that she was going to uh, stiff her creditors for the course of World War I, uh, all of a sudden her credit wasn't good and she had to turn to the United States for financial support. And uh, that's what happens when you stiff your creditors once, you don't have the creditors when you need them the second time. Well, can I then ask, now, uh, looking at it from that point of view, are you worried that we're uh, about to, to move forward into a new uh, um, re recessionary period? Or how do you feel about it? I have absolutely no doubt that we will not obsolete the business cycle. First of all, you absolutely need the business cycle. You know, it wasn't our brilliant stalwart regulators who stopped Bernie Madoff or who they were scared to death of stopping the, uh, the uh, uh, mortgage securities bubble. They didn't touch it. What stopped those disasters was the business cycle. When the business cycle turned down, it popped the bubble and it popped Madoff's bubble too. So you really need the business cycle to cleanse the system in its usual vicious, efficient way so that we can prosper thereafter. I hate to say that because uh, most people get very offended when I do say that, but that's the truth. So what part do you think we are in the business cycle right now? We are right now in the boom side of the boom and bust that's typical of interest rate suppression policies. You know, this policy is not new. In fact, in 1929, we had an interest rate suppression policy at the Fed, and the Fed's rates is as 5 and 6% were much lower than the uh, call money rates of the day. And uh, they were uh, very busy sterilizing reserves. We were keeping a big bunch of our reserves in European accounts so it wouldn't push up our money supply. So we were sterilizing reserves then, just as we've sterilized $2.6 trillion in reserves at the Federal Reserve today. So we've had the same thing, and what you get out of that, typically, I mean, Japan did the same thing in the 80s, it's, it's not novel, uh, you get a boom and bust situation. The low interest rates do promote a boom, and uh, the trouble comes thereafter when the interest rates start to rise. When the when the Fed has been the Fed has been as we talked earlier in the program, the Fed has been keeping interest rates close to zero for at least eight years, uh, yes. and the and the and the average GDP over the eight years of the Obama administration has been less than two percent. Uh, I would find it difficult to call that a, a a boom period. I'm talking about the boom in asset price inflation. I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear. You don't have consumer price inflation under this type of program. Japan didn't have it in the 80s, and uh, China hasn't uh, had it uh, lately. Uh, and we didn't have it in 29, as Friedman pointed out. There was no consumer price inflation. But you do get this asset price inflation, and it is almost by definition that when asset prices are inflated, you create bubbles. And so was the correction in 2008 uh, with the mortgage price 
mortgage problem, 2009, 2010. Was that a, a, the bust of the cycle? That was the bust of a cycle, yeah. Okay. And then and now so, we've taken off on another one. With, and how long, um, how long do you do you think that this this boom will last? I think it's going to last uh, probably last you know as slow as uh, Yellen is uh, in allowing her interest rates to rise, and it probably lasts another two years before she gets over and gets north of three percent. She's very cautious, and well, she should be. But in two years, she'll be gone, won't she? Well, then somebody—it'll be somebody else's problem. Well, there's there's talk on the street right now about the people that that Trump is thinking about importing to the Federal Reserve. There are three open positions. Two of them are uh, are are not um, doves. They are not Keynesian. Yeah. Yeah. Well. There's 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 a uh, there's a danger when you shift policy to something that's reasonable after following a long line of uh, of uh, unreasonable Keynesian policies that if you change the policy and the the correction in the economy is pretty harsh you'll get blamed for it. Uh, so it, these these things are, okay. you saw that happening with um, with. Uh, uh, Greenspan in 2005, when he testified before Congress, even Congress could see that things were uh, were going bad then, and, and, and he was frightened himself to try and do anything about it that might uh, bust the bubble on his watch. So what would, what would Janet have to do, or what, what would the Fed period have to do that would extend this recovery beyond two years? Well, why do you want it to be extended? You know, these types of situations always accelerate as they go along. Uh, for example, if the, uh, if the uh, credit crunch had occurred in 2005, when even Congress saw, saw the, it coming, instead of 2007, 40% of the financial damage would have been avoided. 40% of the financial damage accrued in the two years between 05 and 07. So uh, sometimes you're going to have to bite the bullet and get get things straightened out uh, because it's certainly not going to be done by our uh, brilliant uh, regulators. <laughs> Could I jump in here and ask a question? Sure, uh, sure. A, a big difference between uh, the Depression and now is that one-sixth of the economy is now tied up with health care. What do you uh, what do you see the health care affecting all of this, and what can we do about the the cost where a five dollar uh, uh, doctor's visit is now one hundred and fifty dollars? Well, every time the government steps in to do us a favor mm. by subsidizing one of our needs, whether it's uh, for example uh, uh, college tuition or uh, health care. Right away, uh, the there are no constraints anymore. There are no cost constraints on the market, and without cost constraints, all the noble doctors and all the noble noble academics are all too anxious to dip into the uh, to the funds coming in so prolifically, and costs go up and up and up. Whenever we have an entitlement, the cast the question to to ask the economist is. Where are the cost constraints? 
because without cost constraints, we get the situation that we have in, well, also in housing with all the uh, subsidies uh, that we give there. You get uh, very buoyant prices. You get uh, uh, levels of inflation that uh, eventually are simply going to be uh, too, too big even for the federal government to bear. So uh, we're in a nasty situation. It's taken us 50 years to get here. And um, it, I, I don't have big hopes for, uh, for Trump's uh, efforts, uh, even if he passes something, mm -hmm. to uh, straighten this thing out. Well, you, so so you, would, you, would be, you would say, based on what you just told Don, that Obamacare is a classic example of the government screwing up a free market. We didn't have a free market. We haven't had one for 50 years. The government has been involved in this market ever since World War II. And uh, it just keeps digging that hole deeper and deeper because, of course, people vote for the politicians that offer them benefits from the public treasury. But uh, the market is, is, is just an incredible mess right now. Um, I, I can't even begin in this short time to delve into how how much of a mess it is. Now, IQ, you know, sit, sitting back yeah, here and, and listening to this, uh, between Dan and Don I, and everybody, not, uh, what do you make of this? I would like to ask all of you one simple question. Yes. The United States of America produced the greatest number of Nobel laureates in economics, and yet you have a disaster. How is that possible? Explain it to me. Uh, I have been criticizing Keynesian economics now for over 50 years. The Keynesian economists have, are the ones that the politicians hire because the politicians love economists that provide justification for what they want to do, which is, of course, running the printing presses and, uh, and, and running big budget deficits. So no matter how many times we screw up trying to follow Keynesian policies, the, the, the politicians always revive them again and bring them back to Washington for another effort to destroy the finances of the United States. And as far as the awards are concerned, don't forget that there are Keynesian economists on the awards committees, and they love to give prizes to their own. You know, this is a breath of fresh air, Jiggy. I don't... I don't uh, <laughs> this is a really breath of fresh air, don't you agree, Dan? Yeah, no, I I, uh, I agree. I'm, I'm not. I don't know that I'm as pessimistic as our guest is, uh, or uh, maybe realistic as our guest is. But I uh, I, I thought IQ's question was a great question. You know, it, it it it's amazing to me, IQ, when we we hire all of these Harvard graduates, MIT graduates who are economists and who run all these models for us working in the government and they can't get squat right and yet because they're Harvard or, or, or Princeton or Yale or Stanford graduates and they've got a Nobel Prize they're supposed to be smart and in reality uh, the assumptions that these people make I mean here we have right now just as a quick example Jim I just wrote this piece um, we have the president pulling out of the Paris Accord. And the if you look at the Paris Accord, and you have to really dive deep to get to this, 
the estimate is that the world will contribute $68 trillion towards uh, global climate change. And that's an estimate 83 years out. What government in, in any history of the world, and I would ask our guests the same question, what government has ever been able to look out and make, or what economist has ever been able to look out and make a prediction that comes true 83 years in the future? Not one of those mathematical models has ever been validated. They are all based on opaque aggregates that hide more than they reveal. All of the devils are in the details. Oh, I and absolutely they, agree with you. So uh, I agree with IQ. They, they are based on aggregates. In fact, the uh, Bank of England has access to, to just about all of them, and they have an interesting little book of the studies that they ran, Henry and, Eric St and Erickson, Understanding Economic Forecasts. And they just found a whole list of weak, inherent weaknesses in, in, in mathematical economics. Uh, but they use it. They use it because people are impressed by the mathematics. They are the astrologers of economics, and they look for omens in their models to either bless or condemn the uh, projects in in the political system. Yeah, it's just amazing to me that that anybody could 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 swallow the concept that we can figure out what we're going to be spending, and what the average temperature of the Earth is going to be 83 years out. It's just mind-boggling to me that there are people in this country and around the world who, ex who treat that as gospel, when it's, it's stupidity. Well, let me, uh, let me give, you know, we've, necessarily we've been, all been uh, very gloomy here, but let me give, uh, a, a, a shed, shed a, a bright light on this. Never underestimate the productivity, resilience, and strength of the American economy. Amen. Whatever happens, whatever goes wrong, it, will, it can all be remedied by just a few years of reasonable economic policies. Uh, as, as we found out in, in the 80s, coming out of the Keynesian inflationary morass of the 1970s, our economy is strong, it's resilient, the American people are productive, and long-term, I am very optimistic, even if I am uh, very pessimistic uh, in the medium term. And, and that begs for me to ask you another question about what you just said. You were very, very specific in that just last articulation. You said America. Are you saying that no else... Another place in the world can do what we can do. Uh, not a, not a, well. Uh, you know, can, the, all of the Anglo-Saxon countries have it in them if they if they just put together some reasoned economic policies uh, to prosper. And you do have small nations that do fairly well in Northern Europe, and of course Germany is a paragon of uh, of uh, economic policy excellence in many ways. So, you know, there's nothing inherent about uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, economics, but uh, we do have a talent for uh, uh, the, the government and institutional laws and regulations which create capitalist markets. 
you know, <laughs> capitalist markets are not inherent. They're not God-given. They are much more than a Middle East bazaar. They, they, to have markets which uh, facilitate the building of wealth, you have to have suitable uh, uh, laws, commercial laws and so forth, as you know. Uh, so you, you always have to draw a sharp dividing line, and there's some overlap, obviously, between those laws and regulations that burden the economy and those laws and regulations that facilitate the economy. And the latter are absolutely essential if we're going to have a capitalist market system. Dan Blatt joins what do you us today. Think, He's uh, the author can of... I under- jump in here? Hold on just a second. Dan Blatt with us today, author of Understanding the Great Depression. Don, go. Okay. Um, uh, my question then is, what, a, what is the role of China in the future and Asia? Uh, China started off under Zhao Zeping, uh, very impressive, very determined uh, reform efforts, piece by piece, putting it together. Uh, China is the, uh, is the uh, epitome of showing how even markets that are far from perfect routinely raise billions of people out of poverty. But in the last uh, perhaps decade, she has been retrogressing. The politics have gotten in the way. Uh, she's, to a large extent, uh, she's been uh, building up her uh, government uh, sector, which is a burden on the economy. But her private sector is still incredibly vibrant. And so it's, it's a real mix, and it's, a, it's an interesting experiment to watch. And it would be far beyond my pay grade to offer any definitive uh, uh, conclusion on that, although I will say that um, the, we, it, it, it is a competition between an authoritarian capitalist system and democratic capitalist systems with strengths and weaknesses on both of them. The weakness for China is the corruption that uh, without any light being shed on the corruption, it just gets stronger and stronger. And the weakness, as Schumpeter pointed out, for the democracies is that uh, in a democracy, the people will always start to uh, uh, ask for more and more benefits from the public treasury which can overwhelm an economy. So it'll be interesting to see which, which form of economics uh, triumphs. I won't be here to see the resolution of it. You young guys, uh, keep an eye on it. Well, we, had a guest, we had a guest <laughs> on the show a couple of weeks ago who is a, a demographer, studies people and populations. And he says that uh, the birth rate in both... Germany and China are so low that those economies are going to come to enormous pressure and that because of the high population and birth rate in the United States, we're going to see a significant transformation of America becoming a manufacturing capital of the world again because people want to build stuff and they have to go places where they can get it built. And uh, the low birth rate in Germany, even with the immigration population, is not going to allow the, to keep them and China competitive longer term. 
Yeah, you know, uh, there's one thing that uh, people who talk that way uh, fail to point out. Uh, yeah, we have fewer workers now than we did, say, in 1960. But the average worker in Germany or in the United States today is perhaps four times as productive as the average worker of 1960. And uh, uh, the catastrophists who, who like to bring that up, and it's a real problem, it's a real problem, but they never seem to put into the mix the increased productivity of the average worker of today compared to yesterday. And indeed, you can see it in our manufacturing. We're manufacturing more today than we ever did, but we're doing it with fewer and fewer workers because our productivity is becoming uh, increasingly uh, good. Well, our, our, our other host here, Mr. Mazzella, is on the National Robotics Foundation Board, and we've, we've discussed a great deal about the role of robotics to the manufacturing process around the world. And uh, Foxcom, who is the principal contract manufacturer for Apple, uh, is coming to the United States to, uh, to build a manufacturing plant um, but it's going to be almost totally automated with robots to manufacture Apple's uh, television monitor. So not only are we more productive, but it takes less people to produce because of the ever-increasing demands of replacing those people with robots. Well, let me uh, just inform you of what's recently been happening and is going to accelerate uh, for uh, domains like uh, Facebook. Facebook now is hiring thousands upon thousands of bright young college students and graduates to do what? To censor the hundreds of millions of posts that get put up on Facebook. They can no longer, governments will no longer permit them to simply allow anything that anybody wants to be posted on uh, on Facebook or for Google to uh, to facilitate the terrorists or child the pornography or nasty things like that and yes uh, I imagine that uh, computer algorithms can really help in that task but ultimately it takes a pair of human eyes to look at a posting and make the critical decision as to whether that posting should be allowed to remain so uh, I have great hopes for the continued uh, use of, uh, of human beings in the future. Do you think what you just said though, it flies in the face of the Constitution of freedom of expression? Uh, freedom of expression, you know, you, you do have exceptions. You have exceptions for uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and also you understand that you can be liable for uh, a variety of, uh, of things under the civil law, and the liability penalties can be stiff. So, yes, they, and, and, and then there's just the, um, the uh, uh, reputation aspects of it. Uh, Facebook simply cannot uh, simply keep its head in the sand and uh, allow itself to be a medium for the organization of uh, terrorist cells and expect people to allow it to get away with that. But you're, you're, you're setting up a board of, in essence, Facebook is setting up a board of censors under nobody's control but Facebook. 
to decide say, whether it, or not. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 in a, it's in effect right now. I think for child pornography. Uh, so uh, uh, and 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 it, there are thousands of uh, young people, young eyes, uh, actively engaged in the effort right now. It's probably the sort of thing that uh, kids can do, uh, young people can do from their homes uh, to earn a few bucks. But uh, I am sure that all the legalities will be taken care of. Now, IQ... After all, you can put, you can put the requirements in the contract. When people sign on to Facebook, one of those little uh, uh, paragraphs deep in the... Uh, in, in the agreement that nobody ever bothers to read and uh, explicitly uh, uh, per, uh, uh, state that uh, you're not permitted to run a terrorist cell through Facebook. Now, IQ, listening to all this, uh, what, what are your thoughts on some of this? It's a pleasure to listen to the gentleman, especially about economics. I don't know much, but it sounds bloody good. At least more realistic than all the Nobel Prize winners scenarios because as Don was saying, they're looking at 83 years in the, in the future. They can't even see what there is next week or next two weeks. The other thing is the censorship of Facebook. I agree, there should be limitations. But the terrorism in the world has nothing to do with Facebook. It's to do with Islam. And there is absolutely no chance in hell that any in Europe and any in America will deal anything realistically with Islam for as long as our leaders keep saying that those terrorists have nothing to do with Islam, it is to do with the Muslims. These well, attackers... Uh, that's, a, that's an important subject, but I think it's a, a subject for another day. I think we've got a, as much on our plate as we can handle with economics right now. <laughs> Accepted. Now, uh, now, now, Dan, uh, do you have a follow-up or anything here that you'd like to ask? Yeah, I, I think that I want to follow IQ because um, what we, we, we must remember, when you talk about Facebook and Google and Twitter and all of these public forums, you're talking about the public Internet. My guess is that if there's anybody interested in terrorism, they're most likely getting their their relationships on the black internet, which is not public. And and so I don't know how you if you say you're going to use that Facebook is going to now censor what stuff's going on relative to terrorists and all that stuff. Um, that is not a, a a complete solution, and I suspect that the the black the black internet is more powerful of radicalizing people than than Facebook or Twitter, um, but I, I, I do think that uh, that the the internet is an interesting um, interesting issue because uh, Don and I had a guest on our show today who was talking about um, international e-commerce. And the ability to trade uh, uh, services or products uh, throughout the world from your kitchen table that the internet has made um, potentially all of us into small businesses and that's kind of interesting 
American Express as a series of forums around the country helping startups and small businesses become international business people. So again, the, the, the world is, uh, you talk about being a global economy, um, which is true, but what we heard this morning was that we're talking about the ability to be global from your kitchen table and that small business people who never would have thought in the past that today they could ever sell products in Europe or Asia or South America or Africa now have the ability that they can do that um, through their kitchen table and their laptop computer. So yeah, these uh, um, these um, uh, advances, technology advances, always enable an economy to do many things that couldn't economically be done before. And the people who wring their hands and worry about the lost jobs and, oh, where are the lo they haven't the foggiest idea. But ordinary individuals seeing opportunities arise right in front of them, they're the ones who take advantage of it. It's, it, it's the market and the people in the market who provide the new initiatives and the new jobs. One of the things, though, that I, I, I really do want to ask you about on this subject, it's, it's a little bit of a tangent, but, but relative. Um, I, I, as a student of American history from a long time, um, I'm 72, so I don't know how old you are, but maybe I, you're just a youngster. Okay. Um, I, I look at what's going on, and and when I was growing up in Columbus, Ohio, I could go out in the morning during the summer and say goodbye to my mom and come back at nighttime. She never worried about me. Go play in the park in the playgrounds, play with friends and neighbors in the neighborhood. And we had a, we had a, a neighborhood. We had a, a family in the neighborhood. Other parents looked out for other kids. And part of the beauty of America was that over time, the immigrants came to the United States and they assimilated. They learned the language, the culture, and the law, and the currencies, and became educated in their Usually second generation. It was the second and third generation that did that. Right. But what I'm concerned about is that we are in a new level where we have uh, not, are not going to experience anywhere near the level of assimilation of the foreigners that are coming into the United States today that we've seen in the past, which is going to divide us as a nation and, and separate us into different groups that will not assimilate and we will not have that great culture that we had in the past. Well, there is a, a project amongst uh, uh, liberal in intellectuals to divide up the country mm -hmm. and to prevent assimilation, and that's that's a real problem. I uh, I have nothing to offer on that. Uh, it, it, it is a real problem. Serious well, problem. Go ahead, Don. Well, no, well, you know, it's so nice to be in a, a program where everybody agrees like this and looks at things. But uh, unfortunately, um, let, let me ask you a question. Um, I think we're all about the same generational uh, uh, period, but um, uh, how do you feel about the younger generation? Do you think uh, we, we can, uh, I hate to use the word, save them, at least educate them a little differently? Uh, so yeah, that they the, can... the younger generation is going to hell in a handbasket, and it's been going there for the last 2,000 years of recorded history. <laughs> 
So, so you you have hope for them? Yeah, the, you know, you can you can uh, you can uh, confuse people with propaganda and all sorts of rationalizations, but the markets will not be amused, and the a market and, and if your conclusions and your policies don't make market sense, eventually we will be punished and be punished severely enough so that. Uh, some degree of uh, rationality will be forced upon us. Well, what is, uh, let me go way out of left field and ask you a question. What about the all-volunteer army? I mean, we had an all-volunteer army during the Depression, and then we went back to the draft for obvious reasons. But the, the, and the army used to be a great uh, unifier. What do you think about it today and its role? Well, I, I happen to have a nephew, a great young fellow, who's uh, a senior officer in the Special Forces. He's been uh, in, in the, the head of the spear all this time. And uh, all, all I know is he's just the, the greatest guy in the world, and uh, he's, uh, he's got his own opinions about uh, the way things are going. But uh, there are... As, as you might expect, in, in the Army, there is a mix of, uh, of uh, people who are in there for various reasons. But uh, I, I think that our Army is, uh, has been performing uh, well at the tasks that it was not designed to do. I mean, he was a, a captain in Afghanistan, and they had him acting as a uh, diplomat amongst the uh, tribal chiefs in uh, Pushtun. Uh, he, he never learned how to do that. And that's what we ask of them. We ask some things of them. You know, they're they're trained to kill people and smash things, not to be uh, to make nice, and so forth. And yet they have done an, an awfully good job at that when they've been asked. Uh, as for uh, getting people together uh, in the army, <clears throat> we didn't have that uh, before World War II. You know. This is the United States of America, not the United Peoples of America. Uh, and for good reason. Our peoples have never been united. They've always been fractious. And it is the brilliance of our political system and, uh, and our Constitution that it has provided a framework in which these differences can be uh, thrashed out and the, and the country can still keep moving forward. So um, I, I, as long as we retain the Constitution we have and protect it, and there are those like Justice Breyer who are trying to change it, uh, but as long as we retain that, uh, I, uh, I tend to be optimistic about the future of this country. Do you think that uh, do you, you're, I'm sure you're aware that there are people who are saying today that the Constitution is, is irrelevant? That it's um, it's it's not it's not suitable for today's time. Justice Justice Breyer would like to change our uh, system into a presidential system, with an all-powerful uh, administrative state, with the with the courts deferring to almost anything the administrative administrative agencies want to do. That's one reason why the fight over uh, the last Supreme Court nominee was so uh, severe because that was the deciding vote on the Supreme Court. Uh, I wonder how Justice Breyer thinks now 
that uh, we have Donald Trump in the presidency instead of Hillary Clinton, who, whom I'm sure he would think more highly of. You know, uh, these people think they're so bright, but they don't have the common intelligence of the people at the Constitutional Convention and in the ratifying conventions. They knew, if they knew one thing, that not every president would be George Washington. And it is precisely for the times when our president is not a George Washington that we need all the checks and balances and safeguards that uh, Breyer would so casually cast off. Would you, would you agree that under the Obama administration, we had that type of government? We had an administrative government who could absolutely write laws absolutely. And, and not bother with the legislative branch? Yeah, the, he, he started out promising to be the most transparent administration in history, and I, I don't know the exact figures, but I'd be very surprised if uh, his administration didn't have more litigation, Freedom of Information Act litigation, than uh, any previous uh, administration. Here, here. Do you think that the Bataille, that, uh, and I, I'm, I'm one of those people who watched Donald Trump come down the escalator in Trump Tower and said, and my partner Don was, was not with me at the beginning, that he's going to be the next president. And I agree with Michael Bloomberg, who said two weeks ago, he's already a 50, 55% chance of getting reelected. Do you think that Obama will have any legacy left by the time Trump walks out of the office in eight uh, years? <clears throat> well, I hope not. But, you know, they're working really hard. The uh, media doesn't uh, publish it, but uh, he has signed an enormous amount of legislation uh, having to do with uh, stripping away uh, regulatory uh, constraints. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, just as a regulatory matter, uh, they simply aren't enforcing regulations as, uh, as uh, rigorously as, uh, as the Obama people, so that's an advantage right there. So we, we'll see how uh, well, and they had better. Whatever else you think about Trump and his other policies, he had better, he and Ryan had better be successful in eliminating uh, the, the, the regulatory constraints on the economy. I mean, they were putting out 80,000 pages of new regulations a year in the final term. Uh, <laughs> no economy can thrive under that. And again, when Yellen gets those, or, or her successor, gets those interest rates north of 3%, we had better have an economy which is strong and resilient so that it can take on those stresses. Otherwise, we're going to see uh, uh, the problems of an over-leveraged economy uh, pop out. We don't, we don't have a lot of time left. Let me, let me ask you my last question. Um, if there's one thing that Mr. Trump and his administration, just one thing that he needs to do, what is it? A year from today, he'd better have an economy that is visibly prosperous. Otherwise, he's going to have trouble in the next election. Is that 3%? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to put a definite figure on it, but it, it has to be an economy that, that, that people feel comfortable with. If he can get it up to 3%, uh, you know, you, you can, uh, the, the Democrats are going to have a tough time. And if he's still below 2%, then 
then the Republicans are going to have a tough time. Somewhere in between there uh, is probably where it's going to lie. So three percent. If, if we get to three percent uh, by the 2018 election, we get to three percent. It has to be a year. few months before that, a year from today. Okay. Do the Democrats take another beating in the polls in November? I would. I would be very surprised if they didn't. Okay. After so, all, they're, they're they're in real trouble in the Senate with the way the uh, election is stacked up. Right. Agreed. Thank you. Well, you we're, we're not letting him go, are we, Jiggy? No, 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 just, no we're not. No, he, he just wanted to get his last question in. Don, you and IQ can ask him a few more questions. No, go ahead. Well, well uh, I want to defer to IQ, who's remained uh, silent, but uh, um, maybe we can bring IQ in because do you think the American people are waking up to the real threat of ISIS thanks to the... Uh, uh, London, um, the the London carnage. Uh, interesting. Just across my um, computer came the note that the the number of cancellations, trip cancellations, has escalated beyond anything uh, the insurance companies had anticipated because of the London. But uh, IQ and our guest, who has been terrific, uh, w what do you think about the ISIS situation and the terrorist threat? Let me tell well, you, uh, you know, we have we have the uh, forces to do what has to be done. Uh, if you give your adversary time, they will always find shrewd blows to, 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 to levy on you. You don't have time. You have to go at it as time is of the essence. We should just make it a policy to go after these uh, uh, Muslim militants, wherever they are, and clobber them every time we have a chance. Because if they have a sanctuary or if they're given time, they will uh, hit at us in one way or another. Uh, actually, uh, you know, um, the French have been our most useful ally. French West Africa used to be uh, Northwest Africa. And with just a few thousand uh, soldiers in the best tradition of the Foreign Legion, They've gone into Africa, and they have pretty much suppressed the uh, militant Islam uh, uh, movements in those uh, old regions of French West Africa. And we're getting to that now, too. I see that happening uh, in, in many other places. Uh, but we really have to be aggressive in our military response to these people because uh, they don't know anything else. If we play patty cake with them and try and be nice, and it just proves to them we're decadent and weak and ripe for the taking. IQ, jump in there. Well, Mr. Blas is an authority on economics. With all due respect, I'm an authority on Islam. Attacking them outside the United States, fine, beautiful, but you will never finish them off. The problem that you have in Western Europe and the problem that you have in America is the total denial by the leaders of associating Islam with terror. I hate to hear that not all Muslims are terrorists. Yes, I agree. But every single attack against infidels is committed by Muslims. And since 2001, 37,000 terrorist attacks with hundreds of thousands of people dead all over the world have been committed only by Muslims. And here we have 
the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, telling the British people, it is Islamism. Bullcrap. There is no such thing as Islamism. There is only one thing called Islam. Okay? The difficulty in the Western mind is to believe. They're not willing to believe that a so-called religion, which is so-called peaceful, is so evil. But Islam is not a religion. Islam does not mean peace. It means submission. And it is evil. And all anybody has to do is Google Quran and read chapter 2 to chapter 9. There are 114 chapters. Don't waste your time. Read chapter 2 to chapter 9. Two and a half hours maximum. And if you can come to a conclusion opposite to mine, do me a favor. Call me. Back to you. Yeah, essentially, this is a civil war in the Muslim community and in the Middle East. Uh, more Muslims, far more Muslims are dying than uh, uh, us Westerners or anybody else. Uh, we're just a sideshow for what's going on there right now. Uh, th they try and uh, vie for dominance uh, in their own territory. And uh, I think Obama finally got one thing right. We, uh, as, as the gentleman just said, uh, we can't uh, handle this on our own as, as, as just discrete uh, uh, factors. We have to find allies in the region and support them in, in, in fighting the militants. And that's really ultimately the, uh, the only approach that I can see that uh, will lead to good results. IQ, I got a new number for you. What do you mean? I, I read, just, just read this article. I, I'll look for it so if I can send it to you. How many people the, the, quote, Muslims have killed since the founding of their religion? Oh, how many? I will tell you how many. Almost 200, 240 million. I was, the last number, the number I saw was 160 million people. Uh, 240 million because in Africa alone, 140 million. In India, right. 110 million. That's already 250 million. Right. Okay. It's Thank a warrior you. religion. It is not, just like Christianity was a warrior religion some centuries ago, but uh, World War I and World War II uh, uh, made us think better of the matter. Uh, but uh, they didn't. They didn't have World War One and World War Two uh, as an influence, and so they're they're still uh, hot to uh, to fight each other, and uh, that's what they're doing. Well, as we wrap up here, uh, let's start with Dan. Uh, give us an update on the uh, nonprofit and everything else you've got going. Songs and stories for soldiers. Us. Um, we're just about to hit twelve thousand players distributed. Uh, we are in conversations all over the country that, knock on wood, Jim, we could be at 100 facilities by the end of the year. Wow, pretty amazing. Uh, educate Dan here a little bit on what you're doing. We have started a foundation a little over two and a half years ago called Songs and Stories for Soldiers to help the Veterans Administration and other organizations treat soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, sleep deprivation, and trying to do something about the suicide rate. Uh, 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.